Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to the show. I'm glad you could join me as this week we're going to be speaking with Brett Mann. Now, this is a wide-ranging conversation because Brett has a number of different interests that we dive into. For example, we talk about stress and psychology and its impact on our health. Here's an excerpt from our conversation. So you've used the word somatization a couple of times. Can you just unpack that for us? So soma is Greek for body. Mm -hmm. And we have this word in our, our language of psychosomatic, which is psychological uh, factors affecting the body and we tend to think of that as somebody with psychosomatic illness as uh, as somebody with uh, who, who doesn't have a physical problem but it's just it's all psychological and yet they've got physical symptoms mm. but actually we're psychosomatic creatures mm. and for me too i would say pneumo um, psychosomatic creatures um, spirituality is is part of it as well so mm. there's a number of different terms used but somatization is which focuses on the body part the bodily presentation of of physical symptoms right but with psychological factors mm. um, contributing well, i know you're going to enjoy this conversation so we're going to get into it if you do you might want to check out some of the more than 160 in the back catalog and you might want to visit the website at theseeds.nz And I haven't made this plug for a while, but if any of you are on Apple Podcasts, it'd be great if you could leave a rating or review in that platform, because it helps other people to find the show as well. Now, here's my conversation with Brett. All right, so it's a pleasure to welcome Brett Mann to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Steve. Um, And I feel like this is the first time we've met, I think. It is, But I feel like I know you because of a mutual friend, Grant Adams. Yes. And he often, in conversations, will say, oh, Brett said this, Brett said that. (laughs) So I feel like I've kind of gotten to know you over the years as well. So um, it's a delight to have you on the podcast. Um, As you know, what we do on the podcast is kind of go back in time and look into people's histories and their stories and then talk a little bit about what they're doing today. So if we could start with your history and where are you from? So I'm a fifth generation New Zealander on my mother's side and uh, my great 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 grandfather uh, came to New Zealand with uh, William Hobson and uh, he was uh, grandfather was actually present at the signing of the Treaty of Waitangi. Wow. So there's a, a whole um, family history down that side and on my father's side I'm a first generation New Zealander with uh, he was English and immigrated to New Zealand in the mid 1950s to to marry my mother who he had met in England right so uh, I was born in 1958 and um, the oldest of uh, three brothers mm-hmm. uh, mothers passed on and father's still alive living by himself and Doing okay. Right. Oh, wow. So that's that's quite a a parentage of immigrant and Mm. like the legacy of Mm. someone who was at the signing of the Mm. Treaty of Waitangi. Mm. What was that? Was that a part of your childhood? Like, did you know my great, 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 you know, grandfather was there or or was it a a footnote in your childhood? No, it's actually a a more recent discovery. my wife is a a amateur historian and she just loves history Mm. and uh, she's done a lot of work on on genealogies including our family genealogy and she had discovered the um, the 
situation about grandfather, but it hadn't really connected in with me. And then about uh, five years ago, Helen and I were at a World Vision uh, supporters meeting, and there was a, a young man there who who worked for World Vision, and he was just completing a master's degree on this uh, Christian Maori chief from the North Island, and uh, spirituality is important to me, and this uh, idea of a, a Christian Maori chief was who'd been influential was very uh, interesting to me, and so I asked to read. Uh, Jonathan's thesis and read that a couple of times and Helen said one afternoon look why don't you ask um, Jonathan around for a meal so Jonathan came around for a meal and we were talking about this uh, Maori chief a a truly great New Zealander the the New Zealand Herald says that uh, he is one of the top 10 greatest New Zealanders um, ever Mm. Um, Wurumu Tamahana uh, from Ngati Hoa and the um, so we, we'd spent an hour uh, talking about Wurumu Tamahana and, Bre- and Helen said, oh, Brett had some family up that way. And she pulled out the family genealogy and as I remember it, pretty much the first photograph that popped up, uh, there were six people in the photograph and Jonathan looked at the photograph and said, that's Wurumu Tamahana. Hmm. And we've just spent an hour talking about him and suddenly there's this family connection. And not only that, the two Māori and four... Uh, Parkour in this photograph from the um, 1860s, and Wurumu Tamahana has his hand on my great great grandfather's shoulder. So um, I, it was a jaw dropping moment, mm. and I was uh, blown away and had no idea that um, of that connection. And so the question was, what was the connection? Mm. And uh, So lots of vigorous reading of New Zealand history and reading about Wurumu Tamahana, who's also known as the Kingmaker. He was one of the founders of the King Movement. And I found this wonderful story in the the back of a book called Tamahana Kingmaker. And in that story, grandfather is the father of the one in the photograph. So this is my great, great, great grandfather, George Mm. Graham. Mm. He had... He'd, he was the one who came to New Zealand in uh, 1840 with Governor Hobson, and it was a royal engineer. And in the 1860s, he'd become the Member of Parliament for Martin in, uh, uh, sorry, Newton in Auckland. And the Governor Gray wanted to bring an end to the Waikato land war, mm. uh, but government was too afraid to go and talk to Murray. And Maori certainly didn't want to go and talk to the government. Mm-hmm. And grandfather said, I will go. And Auckland was the capital at the time. And uh, Bishop Selwyn said to him, don't go, it's too dangerous. And even some of Tamahana's extended family said, don't go, it's too risky. And grandfather said, I'm going. And went into the Waikaro to meet Wurumu Tamahana and spent a day and a night with him, talking, discussing, uh, they'd previously met before, and grandfather had been very impressed with him, a man of enormous intelligence and integrity. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the end of that discussion, uh, Wurumu Tamahana said to grandfather, let's get on with this before I change my mind, because all the junior chiefs were saying, don't go, too dangerous, you'll get thrown in prison or maybe worse. So they travelled from a place called Peria in the Waikato, just uh, out of not far from Matamata, 
journey of about 30 kilometres to Tamahiri on the outskirts of Hamilton. They get halfway there and they hear there's a, a, uh, a rumour coming from the government side that the government's sending in troops, which was their worst nightmare. So there's grandfather, Wurumu Tamahana, and about 50 junior Maori chiefs. Mm. And so grandfather, who works for the government, and I love the irony of the, of the story, um, he offers himself, as a, as a member of parliament, he offers himself as a hostage to Wurumu Tamahana to stay behind so that Wurumu Tamahana's got bargaining power with mm. uh, General, Brigadier General Kerry, head of the government troops in mm. the Waikato. So this is, in, uh, this is May 1865. And <clears throat> so they carry on and they meet Brigadier General Kerry, who can't believe that Wurumu Tamahana's coming out to meet him, and he's taking enormous risk doing this. Mm. Um, and uh, also the, the risk of being seen to surrender. And, uh, and Wurumu Tamahana, Brigadier General Kerry, in one record says, Grandfather also signed Te Maonga Rongo, which means the Covenant of Peace, and 27th of May 1865, and that was the formal end to the Waikato Land War. Hmm. So, I, my, and my, the man in the photograph, my great-great-grandfather, George's son, he was also present at Tamahiri to do the translation. So both of them were involved in this quite um, uh, key event, yeah. and that's part of the uh, foundation for peace between Māori and Pākehā. How fascinating. In Aotearoa, New Zealand. Yeah, that's amazing, and that you, you, it kind of had gotten lost. Yes, it in, had. Yeah. In the, the history yeah. had gone, and then... Yeah. So it's only in the last five years yeah, that you become aware. It is. Wow, mm. that's amazing. Well, I'd love to talk more about that mm. and and what mm. that has meant for you in your own journey, sort of of exploration and and understanding of um, Maori culture and mm. things like that. But before we do that, um, could we just go back right to the beginning mm. and just tell us a little bit about, um, I guess, your childhood and and what sort of things that you enjoyed at that time. So uh, I was born in Wellington and moved to Palmerston North at the age of two and then Auckland uh, when I was five. Uh, my father was a uh, fencer and uh, represented New Zealand in, in fencing and so sport was always a big deal in our family. My mother was a, um, a very good golfer, she represented Canterbury at golf and so um, sport was was a big thing. We moved to Auckland when I was ten, and uh, and then uh, when I was five, and then came to Christchurch when I was ten. So um, my parents were very good at uh, just pushing us into various sort of sporting activities. Uh, my father loved skiing, and we had wonderful times uh, growing up as as kids, especially when we came to Christchurch when the mountains were just down the road. Mm -hmm. And my father's main aim in life through the winter was to get his feet on the snow as frequently as he could. Right. Um, so, and we had lots of good uh, family times. Mm -hmm. uh, skiing, you're there in a, for an hour in the car on the way up and an hour on the way back and nobody can get out or leave. Mm -hmm. And uh, doing that... Um, family bonding time. Yeah, huh? <laughs> most weekends through the winter was... Uh, was a was a really good thing. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And were there hints of what you ended up specialising in, sort of in your studying? Like, did you enjoy? Well, <clears> hmm. <throat> um, uh, I guess the short answer to that, uh, uh, Steve, is, is is not not really. I um, school. You know, there were a lot less options um, mm -hmm. in the in the nineteen sixties. 
and I was, uh, I guess you'd say I was a people person. I, I liked people and, uh, and enjoyed the uh, interpersonal interactions with people. I, I was um, intelligent and, and liked, um, enjoyed science as well. So I, I became a general practitioner mm-hmm. and the, the, the combination of those two things was, uh, was important. But and a, and a good fit for me. But growing up, my uh, m- my mother's brother um, was a chemical engineer, and he was somewhat idealised in in my experience in the family. Uh, I don't know what the others would think, but that's how uh, it seemed to me. And so I kind of felt like I should be a chemical engineer, like my right. uncle David was. That was the example. To, yeah. To and then for. we had a, um, a young woman used to, who was going to medical school used to stay with us in transit from Dunedin to Rotorua, where she lived. And she, I was 16 and was doing sciences at school. I never did biology at school. Mm. Um, and she, was, she talked to me about what she did. And I thought, well, that sounds pretty interesting hmm. and so by the end of my last year at high school I decided I actually wanted to give medicine a crack and I never did biology at school but so the others seemed to be a bit bored first year of university I was still interested and it was all new to me mm-hmm. um, so that felt uh, rather serendipitous and I often wonder what would have happened if I hadn't had those conversations yeah. with um, with Alison who stopped by on her way back home mm. what was causing her to stop there Did she, just a friend of the family type yeah a friend thing, of the family and yeah. just uh spitting her trip up uh, yeah. with the flights and travel yeah mm. it's amazing in life though isn't it when you look back and you think yeah. if i it, yeah. if that conversation yeah. hadn't happened when you were 16 yeah then you know maybe you would be a chemical engineer yeah. or, or whatever the path would have been right yes and i don't think it would have it wouldn't have worked for me nearly nearly as well i think i probably would have made a some sort of adjustment somewhere along the line but mm-hmm. I, I quite i often think of that axiom i'm not sure who said it but um, life's what happens when you're busy planning something else right and uh, and so often that's i, I found that's true and uh, every 10 years i, I think well if i look back 10 years of where i am now and what i'm doing now and i been uh, I'd known that 10 years ago um, you know every 10 years I think I'd be you know majorly surprised right yeah well I guess that's that's the beauty of life yeah. as well isn't yeah, it there's it always is. you know like the story of the history of yeah. your you, you know your great great grandfather and, yeah. and what they were doing that was a new discovery right yes very much yeah so um, becoming a GP when you're doing that is there a particular area that you're already focusing on or did like did you because you can specialize can't you into pediatrics yeah. or other yeah. things like yeah at the beginning did you know you wanted to be a, a general practitioner I was or? pretty sure I would be a general practitioner I'm a generalist by personality mm-hmm. and um, I find mostly that if you find out enough about pretty much anything it starts to become really interesting mm-hmm. it's only uninteresting un- when you don't know much about it and so whether it's music or sport or medicine um, I'm a generalist um, in my bones and so uh, going through going through medical school I was expecting to get more education about um, psychotherapy and the psychological side of of health and that was pretty thin on the ground uh, it was largely biological mm-hmm. uh, so you you mental illness is biological and therefore you treat it with medications and while that's a bit simplistic the 
the weight of treatment was more on that was somewhat more on that direction. Mm. And I was hoping that there'd be some training on in psychotherapy, at least mm. some basic training. Mm-hmm. And uh, there wasn't, so uh, but further down the track in a variety of ways, um, mm-hmm. some other things came together and, and I decided to do what I call general practice appropriate psychotherapy training mm-hmm. and uh, went out of my way to uh, upskill in that area mm-hmm. and hopefully my psychological skills um, at a similar level to my biomedical skills and skills and then put the two together. Right. So I've... I've I'd, um, I could say more about that, but yeah. Well, why don't we talk about that a little bit? Mm. Because I'm I'm interested um, in the connection between you know a holistic view of a person. Yes. yes. Because I think very often it is well. This is putting it really crudely, but I've got a cut here. I need a band aid. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and kind of fixing the the symptoms rather than the the yeah. cause. Um, yeah. Is is it? That's what you're talking yeah, about, sort of. Very, yeah, so very maybe much. expand a little bit on. Yes, well, um, in in general practice, as every as every GP knows, and medicine in general, you've got twenty five percent of new patients who, in general practice, who do not have any organic pathology. They don't have an infection, a degenerative disorder, a tumor, it's or some other inflammatory condition, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm. Um, it's about what's going on in their life. In a gastroenterology clinic, bowel and digestive disorders, the 50% of those patients will have no organic pathology. And uh, in a neurology clinic, 30%. So it's just huge. And you know, whichever outpatient clinics and whatever specialty, you're looking at um, 20% generally as a minimum mm. where the, the illness is generated by what's going on in a person's life, psychological issues. So I was provoked by that. And being a generalist, that was a gap I wanted to fill. And so uh, I went out of my way to learn some psychotherapy skills and alongside that uh, learn about how to deal with so-called somatization, which is the expression and physical symptoms of psychological and social distress. Mm -hmm. And so... After about uh, uh, about ten years of uh, learning some psychotherapy and doing some counselling in my practice with supervision and working on the somatization, I, I developed a strong sense of uh, my voice. You know what I've got to say in the world, and you know some people it's about what they're going to do, and some people it's about what, what they're going to say. And for me, mm-hmm. it was a bit more about what I was going to say. But I'm a general practitioner in my practice doing my own thing. I'm not in the College of General Practice. I'm not in the university. Mm-hmm. And so how's that going to happen? And, uh, and the long and short of it is uh, it has happened. And there's been some interesting um, ways that that all came about. So mm-hmm. I, I'm a teacher in the general practice uh, training program and uh, a medical educator. And I t- I've just done my 34th seminar a few weeks ago on somatization so psychotherapy when you're talking about that just talk us through what what it would typically involve if a patient came to you and um and seemed yeah just how would you how would you start that conversation and and what would it involve so um the if somebody comes in with physical symptoms every doctor will fairly quickly get a good idea of what the likelihood of 
um, organic pathology is. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there are some situations, many situations, where a person is talking for a minute or two and you just very quickly recognise this is highly likely to be psychological. Right. So if that's the most likely cause, not the only cause, but the most likely one, then <clears throat> I, I will usually normalise and say something like, um, a lot of people with these sort of symptoms, Steve, it's due to what's going on in their life. And the fact there might be a connection with what's going on in your life doesn't necessarily mean you're not coping at all. Sure. Uh, but, but I wonder what was, what was happening in your life uh, around the time that these symptoms started. Mm. And I'll often say, you know, I get gut ache with busyness, pressure, stress. Doesn't mean I'm not coping with it, but sometimes the first indication that uh, there's something going on for me emotionally mm-hmm. is I get a gut ache. And some people get what you've got. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're no, uh, I normalise it. We're all in this together. This is a normal part of human functioning. Mm. And if you set it up that way and you empathise with the, what the person's telling you, then people would be willing to talk. But if you don't set it up, if you don't set the scene for the conversation, people think, you think I'm neurotic, you think I'm imagining it, you think it's all in my head, mm. and they just, uh, you know, they won't talk. Mm. But I some see. of the ones with organic pathology, there are psychological factors there too. And when that's ignored, um, they, and partly because um, doctors are not confident and haven't been taught about how to talk about it with people, then there's a management option that might actually be critical in the resolution of, the, of those conditions mm. that um, doesn't get attended to. Mm. So you've used the word somatization a couple of times. Can you just unpack that for us? So soma is Greek for body. Mm -hmm. And we have this word in our uh, our language of psychosomatic, which is psychological uh, factors affecting the body. And we tend to think of that as somebody with psychosomatic illness as... um, uh, as somebody with, uh, who, who doesn't have a physical problem, but it's just, it's all psychological, and yet they've got physical symptoms. Mm. But actually, we're psychosomatic creatures. Mm. And for me, too, I would say pneumo um, psychosomatic creatures. Um, spirituality is, is part of it as well. So mm. um, the, the, there's a number of different terms used, but somatization is which focuses on the body part, the bodily presentation of, of physical symptoms, right. but with psychological factors mm. um, contributing. Yeah. So you're, sometimes you're, it's the whole story, sometimes it's part of the story. And, and you're basically talking about a holistic view of Absolutely. the person. It's yes. not just the, the biological condition, it's, the, it's what's going on in the brain, it's the, outward, the outer external factors of the different stresses or the family situation or very much yes. worry and all that as well. Yeah. Amount and of some, sleep and <clears throat> exercise and like yep. it's all, it's all part it's, of it. It's right? all in there yep. and illness is complicated. It's overdetermined. There are, you know, there's more than one cause um, in so many cases for it. Mm. And is this, so that, I mean, it kind of, it makes logical sense, but it sounds like this is relatively new thinking. Is that right? Or if you trace it back, <clears throat> we're, I think are it's we old rediscovering thinking, it? But, um, I think the the uh, the mind body problem, which which philosophers have been working on really since the end of the seventeenth century, mm-hmm. and with Descartes, mind and body got split off. Right. And for political um, and sociological reasons, rather than um, intellectual ones, and with our with the uh, our reductionist um, uh, materialistic. 
view of the world. It's very easy where you see mind as an emergent property of brain, like heat is an emergent property of a group of molecules. Um, the 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 key thing is is the is the material aspects the you know the atoms and molecules mm. and uh, that approach I think just simply doesn't account for um, the uh, human experience of illness so those kinds of f- philosophical underpinnings of the biomedical model influence very much the way we approach illness mm. and um, I'm I, I'm persuaded that the uh, what's called the materialistic monist view of mind, which is mind as an emergent property of brain, of neurons, and neurons are really the key thing you've got to look at, mm-hmm. just simply isn't true. Mm. It's a paradigm, and it's, um, it's run out of steam. Mm. Which isn't to say it's not very useful, right. but it's limited. So it's got us to where we are, but yeah. maybe in the future there will be a, a merging back yeah. of the... You know, I, I always this is a complete side issue, but I always talk in, about businesses and how in business we get so focused on profit. Profit is the driver. Is the business profitable? That's the number one question. But actually, if you look at a business, there's a lot more going on. Like yeah. who's it employing? What's the purpose? What what need is it fulfilling within our society? You know, so the profit driver is a paradigm of thinking which doesn't take the holistic view of business and say, actually, there's more going on than just how much money are you making. Um, so it's a completely different example, but in I a way... I completely connect with it. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Very, uh, yeah. Uh, not dissimilar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's the paradigm of thinking, though. It that's is. the capitalist old model of how much money am I making yeah. versus what is what am I doing with the business? And what else what, is important, social what else um, is important? aspect and social context of it? Yeah. So if someone comes to you and you've normalized the conversation and you're talking with them, um, what would the next steps be in terms of psychotherapy? I imagine you're asking questions and you're getting input from them about, well, this was going on and that was well, going on. Often when people actually make the connection, mm-hmm. They, um, there's a lot that they can do themselves. Right. But um, so there's everything from um, talking a little bit more about what's what's happening in their life at quite a basic and common sense level, mm-hmm. to uh, referring them off to see a, a counsellor um, or a psychotherapist mm-hmm. or sometimes a clinical psychologist, and they'll do things slightly differently. Mm-hmm. Um, I did uh, over a thousand hours of counselling in my, my practice when the funding was available and had supervision from psychotherapists. Mm-hmm. So there's actually a lot you can do in a single consultation or, or a double appointment just by careful listening. It's often mm. about listening better, not necessarily listening longer. Mm. So there's the psychotherapeutic aspects that happen um, in, in consultations for most GPs on a, on a regular basis and perhaps for me a bit more because I've done a bit more training with it. Mm. So I guess the point is that through your questioning, you're looking to unlock the door for the person themselves to walk through to a better understanding of where they've been. Exactly that. Yeah. So the skills of listening, like I'd love yes. to, having done many, many interviews mm. with clients and um, patients and, and people, what, what are the key things from your perspective? You can only know, one of the axioms in psychotherapy is that you can only know somebody else to the depths you know yourself. Right. So you need to be tuned into yourself. 
and I tell all my registrars that they need to go and have psychotherapy and that they're doing themselves a big favour um, and partly for, the, for, for that reason. Also because <clears throat> patients will stand on your vulnerabilities and we've all got them. We haven't got perfect bodies. We certainly haven't got perfect psyches and uh, we can do ourselves a big favour by attending to it mm. and uh, doing something about it. So I've been off to see the therapist on three occasions because I was in big trouble no because I had an anxiety disorder or depression or something else no but I'm aware of my psychological wrinkles mm. and and uh, and and the my psychological wounds which we all have mm. and uh, I thought mm, I'd like to do something about that mm. and it's fascinating to just get down to this whole other level of reality that's powerfully influencing our um, cognitions, our thinking, and our emotions and mm. our responses. So, before you come to the to the patient and start asking them questions, the point is that you yourself yeah. know who you are yep. and and are talking with other people. Yes, that's a great word because I think too often we put up barriers around our specialties or our um, our outward presentation. You know, like I work as a lawyer, so um, there's a certain sort of image that goes with that. And I think it would be, you know, a vulnerable thing to go and actually have a session with a counsellor or, or talk with someone. But you're saying that's actually the best place to start. Oh, absolutely. And in general practice, I'm proud of uh, general practice as a specialty, as a discipline, that you get continuing medical education points for going to have your own psychotherapy, a recognition of, of how much that influences and affects your, mm. affects your work. Mm. So there's that, and there's careful listening to somebody else, and empathy is about putting yourself in somebody else's shoes, not just listening from your own perspective, but trying to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and think, if I was in this situation, what, you know, what, would, it, what would it feel like? And our common humanity, you know, we're all basically made of the same stuff. Um, uh, empathy is really very, very important. And, uh, and so listening carefully with empathy and so often normalizing um, somebody's psychological experience because we have this persona, this mask of uh, how things are on the outside. And then what's going on on the inside mm -hmm. is often um, so much more less connected, vulnerable, good bits, not so good bits, healthy bits, not so healthy bits. And many of us are fearful that our bodies are abnormal in some way, and we're fearful that our, our psyches are abnormal as well. So um, it's a great privilege as a general practitioner to see in behind the persona mm. and to... Uh, and that's been good for me, uh, affirming my own humanity, um, you know, seeing, seeing how it is for, for others. Mm. So, yeah, those are some of the So it's giving people, I guess it's giving people a space to be vulnerable. A safe and space, And to open yes. themselves up yes. to think more deeply about what it is that's driving them or what is it that's been happening. And then I yeah, guess, definitely. and then through the listening, you're also probably hearing, you know, like basic things like, uh, I just got a promotion at work and therefore I'm no longer going to the gym and I'm not getting the exercise that I used to. And actually that's about when I started to notice that I was having this other thing and, and helping them to unpack, well, you're not exercising and this is having an impact as well, it, I guess. Yes, it's the, the, the psychological aspect of it is more about 
um, looking at some of the dynamics that are going on with people right. and how that how something like you know getting a new job might create other psychological issues for them. But yes, those basic lifestyle things are just a foundation for uh, for good health. Mm. And you know, exercise and sleep, literally two of the most important things that you can do do for your health. More important than treating your high blood pressure, your cholesterol, mm. perhaps even your blood sugar. Mm. I mean, they're they're just enormously important mm. for uh, good health yeah mm. oh that's great now you've mentioned a word um, which i always like to talk about which is spirituality yeah um, because i think it's important um and probably years ago or decades ago that uh, um that was more commonly thought of i guess as you know just a, a part of the culture in the sense of well you know, I go to church or I, I do this thing. Um, but in my mind, and and I've been doing a bit of thinking about this in terms of Te'au Māori mm. and just thinking about a, a different conception of the world, a different paradigm mm. of thinking. Mm. And I'd just love to unpack from your perspective as a as a GP, you know, what, what dimension does spirituality play? Because I think it's a word that... Um, it can be used in the wrong way, but it's also a word that unlocks a deep a depth to people. Um, so I just, yeah, just keen for your your what thoughts a, on that. What a big question! <laughs> yeah, we, we keep the yeah keep the big ones to halfway through yeah. the interview. <laughs> well, uh, <clears throat> the great William James, uh, known as the father of American psychology, he talked about wild facts, and I love that phrase. It's a there are things that happen to people which are facts, but they're wild. They don't fit the current paradigms or, uh, or theories. So people have spiritual experiences, often of a mystical nature. Um, uh, patients, I've had patients who've had out-of-body experiences. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, I had one patient who <clears throat> sounded like she saw an angel, which might sound utterly bizarre and weird. But people have these experiences and um, people with premonitions and people who um, see departed relatives, all this kind of stuff. And William James pointed out these wild facts are actually not that uncommon. They don't happen commonly to any one individual in most cases, but that they're they're relatively common in the sense that lots of people have had one or two Mm. of these experiences. So they... It's a, it's a real privilege in general practice for patients to, they'll usually test you out and they'll just drop a hint and see whether you're going to take it or not, whether you're interested. And then you hear some amazing stories. So um, spirituality is definitely present, but it may not be up front in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And when the hint comes, uh, I try and take it so that people can bring all of who they are um, into the um, interaction and if it's coming up in the consultation it's coming up because it's important mm. yeah that's interesting so I guess how would you encourage people to think about that then as part of their lives <clears throat> uh, for me Steve that's a that's a philosophical question mm. um, there's uh, for me the most important things about life love beauty um, our experiences of a beautiful view, music, um, a, a deeply loving relationship. The, the scientific, materialistic, reductionist view of that actually diminishes them, I think. 
and they lack value. And there's a philosopher called uh, Owen Barfield that I have a, a lot of time for. And he says, these, these experiences and these, these moments, you might be reading a line of poetry, and the beauty of it just, you know, it captures you and you're just absorbed in it in the moment. Or for others, it might be music or art or mm. uh, other things. And he says, these, these things are actually central to what it is to be a human being. They're not marginal. They're right at the centre of what it is. And our worldviews, the, the dominant um, Western paradigm, well, doesn't explain it, mm. not in a way that values it um, to the degree that people, when they have these experiences, value them. They feel intrinsically really important mm. and at the key and centre of life. And yet our worldview doesn't address it. So... Um, <clears throat> the materialistic view of life is, from, from my point of view, is way too limited. Life reality is much bigger than that. And why we should assume that our uh, five or these days six senses, uh, reality is limited to what we can um, identify, measure, experience with our six senses. Mm. I mean, that's an enormous assumption. And a, um, it's a faith position. It's one that I personally think is incorrect. Mm. Yeah, that's helpful. I, I'm I'm just thinking, you know, just for each of us, there will be times in our lives when there's that extra dimension of life. Yeah. And I'm just thinking in particular right now of my grandmother. So she played the piano for like decades, you know, she learned as a child. And I just remember when she was in her 80s and she just lost her, her husband and she was moving into a cared home facility and things like it was a big transition time and I remember we had like a family dinner and and she was playing the piano and just saying what do you want me to play what do you want me to play and she was and she had the early onset of Alzheimer's but she was playing and for me that moment in time just symbolizes who she was mm -hmm. beyond the sound of the piano you know which was just the physical keys being struck there was something else that was going on that was this connection with her in that moment, which is, it's not a rational thing at all, you know, it's just a, but to me it was kind of a very spiritual moment of looking back, you know, I remember having tears in my eyes and thinking about this person whose life, you know, was coming to the end, and yet here I was listening to her play the piano. It's kind of a weird example, a but, of beauty. you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and there was definitely something deeper going on than just this person's playing a song, you know. Well, Western culture is um, somewhat unique in its um, exclusion of the spiritual aspect, uh, spiritual dimension of life. And they, you know, we think that the other cultures are primitive, um, mm. uh, perhaps because of the, uh, the way they incorporate spirituality and we think we've got a better explanation mm -hmm. um, but I, I think uh, whatever it is that we see in life it also makes it much more difficult to see other things and I think the power of the scientific um, uh, paradigm which is very powerful enormously beneficial I wouldn't want to minimize it in any way whatsoever but it does make it harder to see other aspects of reality and we tend to reduce other experiences back to that um, those sorts of explanations, which mm. I don't think go far enough. Yeah, no, that's helpful. And and as I said before, sort of the Te'au Maori perspective yeah. does mm. definitely yes. weave in Very much. spirituality and there's other, you know, your 
your tipuna and, and uh, mokapuna and like there's lots of dimensions there of intergenerational much more thinking holistic. And, yeah. yeah much much more holistic um, if it's okay let's turn from the psychotherapy mm. side of things and I would love to come back to that story that you told at the start um, and just what what has that meant for you in terms of knowing about your you know your grandfather as you call them you know his role in that environment in the 1860s and what have you been studying recently because we before we started recording you said that you'd gone up to for the commemoration of Parihaka mm-hmm. and I just like to I know that's an area as a generalist that yeah, you that right. you specialized mm-hmm. in a little mm-hmm. bit more mm-hmm. than most of us so mm-hmm. just talk us talk to us about that well the um, for me that, that experience with the uh, Urumu Tamahana with his hand on my grandfather's shoulder was a was a god moment Stephen mm. and uh, many people wouldn't view it that way but in my mm. framework and in my uh, understanding and how the spiritual aspect comes into my life personally that was one of those moments mm-hmm. and so that's generated some vigorous reading about New Zealand history and uh, informing myself of of the issues so um uh, I don't know a lot, but I, I think I, I probably know quite a bit more than the average person about uh, 19th century New Zealand history. And that's just my personality. When something like that happens, I I want to tuck into it. And mm. I'm, I have a, had a strong appetite down that line. So, And especially when there's a direct connection to absolutely. a very prominent figure in New Zealand history standing there next to your, or with his hand on the shoulder of... Of someone that you're related to exactly and yeah. that that put a, a, a big hook in my gut with there was the fact that it's part of New Zealand history there was the family connection mm-hmm. and because spirituality is important to me he was a man who whose uh, Rumu Tamahana's greatness was um, uh, a significant part of his greatness was moving beyond Utu to uh, forgiveness Mm. and um, Utu reciprocity and often uh, including vengeance uh, is a significant part of uh, Maori culture and uh, he he turned to Christ and he this moved him beyond Utu to forgiveness so he became this amazing peacemaker mm. so the hook for me was here um, where many of the media presentations of of Christians are actually very negative and often skewed and, and distorted and, and negative stereotypes, etc., etc. But here's a man who's had a major impact on New Zealand history. And uh, that's, that's inspiring to me. And so I'm now part of an organisation called Tararanga, which means weaving together, mm-hmm. which is an interdenominational organisation in Christchurch that aims to help uh, Christian leaders um, ha- have a greater understanding of New Zealand history, of the the treaty, and the Anglicans and the and the Methodists and Presbyterians, Catholics have done quite a lot of work on that. Um, so our focus is a little bit more on some of those other areas, evangelical, perhaps charismatic end of the spectrum, and uh, help people understand the there's actually a, a Christian heritage story, Maori and Pākehā through New Zealand history. There were uh, numbers of, of significant negative things, but there are actually some very positive um, and key moments where um, uh, that people with a strong Christian commitment have had some um, highly influential um, uh, effects 
um, in our history and helping people appreciate that. Wiramu Tamahana is, is certainly one of them. And uh, the treaty is a covenant, and uh, they, that's a, a term, a, an understanding, an idea, a concept that um, a lot of people will understand in a Christian context. Mm-hmm. And you don't break a covenant. And uh, Ngapuhi uh, refer to uh, Tiriti or Waitangi, the Treaty of Waitangi, as Te Kawanata, the covenant. And so there's, there's this commitment to, in Tararanga to a treaty-based multicultural society. Mm. And so the studying that you're doing, um, has it involved meeting people who are experts in this area and, and reading and that type of thing? Yes, uh, um, all of that. And, uh, and we've been, on, we've been to uh, Waitangi Day with the Karufa Trust, um, Karufa, Four Eyes, um, that was the name that Murray gave to Henry Williams, who was the missionary without whom the, the treaty wouldn't have been signed because Murray trusted him. And he's been somewhat dishonoured historically, and Karafa wants to honour him. Um, Henry was very badly slandered by Governor Gray. And uh, so there's a whole story there. And Karafa runs trips, Hairanga, uh, around the country to various places, the Waikato land war sites, Taranaki land war sites, Treaty of Waitangi, and uh, we've been quite involved with, uh, with some of those. And I've had um, some uh, small discussions with uh, a, at least a couple of um, New Zealand historians about some of the, uh, some of the issues. Mm. So I get the sense that this perspective or um, a reconciliation is important to you. Um, Absolutely. How, how do you think that we can um, move further and, and do better as a nation in this area? I think what's good for Māori is good for Pākehā, undoubtedly, um, in the long term. I think uh, we have our culture, Western culture, Pākehā culture in New Zealand will benefit greatly from uh, numbers of aspects of Māori culture. Mm-hmm. But Many of us as Pākehā, maybe particularly in the South Island, don't, uh, aren't aware of that, don't recognise that. And because many of the perceptions of Māori in the media are still uh, quite strongly negative, and yes, there's a lot more positive ones, but mm-hmm. many of us will have, so, have negative views in various ways. And so uh, in the end, I, the, the vision, I guess you'd say, that Tararanga holds is that uh, New Zealand, the relationship between Māori and Pākehā is a bit like the covenant, the, the, the marriage covenant between husband and wife, mm-hmm. that you are very different from, my wife is very different from me, I'm very different from her, but together the total is greater than the sum of the parts. Mm. And she is fully who she is, I am fully who I am. But we come together and something powerful and special can happen. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely because I've, I've over the years I've been learning a lot more about Te ao Māori and, and culture and, and words like kaitiakitanga yes. and guardianship, stewardship, yes. and holding things for the next generation, yes. oh. and manakitanga, sort of welcoming people and, and you know, being hospitable and generous, and, and, and then whānau, you know, the, the idea of family, but beyond that, the networks of people who interrelate and interconnect, like each of those concepts is so applicable to there's a lot our, of richness there. There's a huge richness, and and I I worry that in our Western culture of 
movies and and what we focus on it, the the questions are often very shallow <laughs> you know it's what do you do and you kind of rank a person depending on the answer and where do you live and what kind of car do you drive like it's very superficial it's not really getting down into the heart into the bones of the person and really fully understanding them yes. which i imagine for you as a gp you get the privilege of having that more holistic view of a person but i think we need to take that out into wider society so that we are asking deeper questions we are resonating with each other and um and i i view tao maori as a one of the keys that can unlock that i see it very much the same way yeah yeah, yeah just with the the emphasis on uh, tupuna and mokopuna you know, we're, we're thinking maybe for our kids mm-hmm. in terms of what the world's going to be like for them. And they're thinking six or seven generations. What's mm-hmm. it going to be like in six or seven generations' time? Much longer yeah. uh, time frame. And at its best, it's, uh, it's powerful, very helpful, and expensive. Mm. And coming back to business, I've talked with several people who are running businesses that are you know, kind of the label right now is social enterprise. Yes. But thinking about a long term business plan that the business may be there in 500 years. And mm-hmm. what what is the course that we're setting for it now that will mean that it's contributing to a regenerative economy rather than an extractive economy? Yes. Yeah. So I agree with you. That's good. You've, you've mentioned a word a couple times, which is spirituality. Mm. Can you just tell us a little bit about your own journey in that, in that area? Yeah, uh, I was part of the last generation to be encouraged to go to Sunday school, which was the 1960s. And my mother used to send us kids off to Sunday school. My father uh, wouldn't generally grace the door of a church if he could avoid it. I look back on that, however, with some appreciation because I grew up with the idea that God was real. The adults seemed to talk about it and presumably believed it, and that kept that side of things open for me. When I was about 13, my mother gave me a book called The Cross and the Switchblade. And I read this book and I thought, that sounds to me like the real thing. That sounds to me something like what spirituality is. Christianity should be and this was a minister in uh, New York who was working with gangs in the slums and his experiences of uh, spirituality in that context and I, I thought it was very powerful I mentioned it to my mother I said oh thanks for the book I love the book and she said oh I don't really believe that stuff do you so I decided at that point what do I think actually I believe it and there's something about that that is true and resonates with me. Mm -hmm. Then when I was 14 at school, I lost some rugby shorts and rugby socks. And I prayed and I said, Lord, help me find these rugby shorts and rugby socks. About six weeks before, I'd lost an oilskin parker. My mother wasn't happy about it. Finances were tight on the home front. So I, I thought, well, this is salt in the wound. So... I prayed, and I was at Christchurch Boys High School, and two days later I walked into the Boys High basement, and there's a thousand lockers that there were at that time in that basement, in groups of maybe 20 or 30. I walked into the basement one morning, just like every other morning that year, and something happened. It was like a switch went off in my head, 
And I suddenly just found myself walking down the basement to a group of lockers. I'd never had a locker in that, in that locker bay before, nor since. Walking down to this group of lockers, standing on a, the handle of one of the doors of the lockers that were low down, and hoisted myself up on top of this locker bay. The height of the locker bay was taller than me. And I was there hanging on top of this locker bay like this. The switch went back off. And there in front of me, all covered in dust, were my rugby shorts and rugby socks. And I was puzzled. And being of somewhat intellectual persuasion, I was thinking, well, I wonder what the criteria are for a miracle. <laughs> So for me, what that, what that meant was that it had a huge impact in that God actually knows me and God actually cares about me. And if me, then everybody else too. Mm. So that was the, the, the rationalization at the time was that people who were uh, motivated about spirituality it was all part of group psychology and you know group experience and get it, getting caught up in the emotion of it all uh, but that and one other uh, situation these happened to me completely by myself there was no group psychology at all so that was somewhat of a foundation stone there's something important here there's something real and and it should be included in the way i understand my life right so that was the, the real, uh, the practical start yes. of feeling yes, that this is yes, it was. a dimension. Yeah. yeah. Mm, that's great. Nothing quite like that's happened before, but there have been numbers of other situations in my life where the right person turns up at the right time at a key moment. So with getting into psychotherapy, I'd had a patient who needed psychotherapy, needed some counselling, but the psychotherapist he was going to see was unavailable for another two or three weeks so I thought oh well, I've just tied him over and I mentioned this to a therapist uh, that I knew and the therapist said to me why don't you carry on which was a very bold thing mm. for him to say mm. but it was actually just what I needed to hear at that point and that that facilitated and enabled and gave me permission to, to carry on and open up the whole journey for me. Uh, if that hadn't happened, I, I, I'm not sure what, it, what would have happened, but something very big and something missing out of my life, out of my educational contribution, out of my practice would have been missing. So it was a key moment. With I'd mentioned before about finding my voice and having a sense of I've got something to say. And... For me, my, the way my brain works and the way I think tends to be at the, the overview level. I'm not so good on details. And there's nothing better about the overview level as to the, versus the micro level, nothing better at all. They're both important. Mm. But for me, that's where my brain and my thinking uh, naturally flows and operates. So I'm thinking, well, how am I going to say these things to the, in the general practice community? Mm. And there was an opportunity to apply for a position in the medical school. And, and I thought, well, no, I'm not going to do that because I'll get caught up in all sorts of other things. So I try and stay very close to the, my inner flow, my inner energy and vitality, my momentum. Mm. 
and and work with that rather than step too much beyond it. Right. That was the obvious thing to do was to get involved in the medical school. But I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. Um, and how's this going to happen? And for me, it was it was literally about trusting the higher power to uh, to sort it out. And then a little bit down the track, maybe a year or two after that, I just got the nudge uh, one day to apply for a for a position as a uh, general practice teacher, a, a registrar teacher. Positions were hard to get, but I applied, and it just t- it turned out that somebody had withdrawn just over the previous one to two weeks, and there was suddenly an opening there, and I just walked straight into it. Mm. Not only that, but part of my voice was to uh, I could see that the, the general practice training program needed to change in terms of teaching where taught communication skills mm-hmm. and also the somatization. Mm-hmm. And it so happened that I, when I applied that the college was going through a curriculum review. And so I walked into that position. The clinical director asked me to, in her words, champion the uh, communication skills training program. Mm-hmm. And within two years, the of me walking in that door, the National Communication Skills Training Program was was changed. The structure of it is the one that um, I put in, mm-hmm. and that that's that was eight years ago, and that continues today. Mm. So for me, that that's all about the the spirituality, the spiritual component of that is is significant. Mm. And it sounds like uh, the thing that I like, and it's actually a good reminder to me as well, is to know yourself and to be centered in who you are. I like how you talked about moving within the energy, you know, what, yes. what brings you energy, because yes. it, very often it is easy to get distracted and get involved in things that actually sap the energy rather than renewing it or, or giving it. Um, but that's helpful, and just to hear you, yeah, that perspective on maybe there is something that's guiding along here. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but think back to the person who originally talked to you about being a GP when you were 16. Like, what are the chances that mm-hmm. someone happens to stop on the trip down from Dunedin back to the North Island, you know, and, oh, maybe I will give this a go. So, yeah, that's really helpful. And I certainly acknowledge there are other ways of viewing those things, but the spirit, the, the, including the, the spiritual aspect in that, for me, is, is the... Uh, better, uh, the best explanation. Mm. Yeah, that's great. So, Brett, it's been fascinating to have you here on the podcast. I think we've covered ranging, what was it, from psychotherapy through to Te'au Maori and uh, many other topics as well. But I really appreciate your time that you'd take out of your day to come and talk with me. So thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. My pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Brett. If you did, remember there's more than 160 in the back catalog. So you might want to check those out as well. Until next time. Mm-hmm.